What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the What Made You Do It podcast. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you all to my boy, Brett Ungashik. Brett and I met while living in San Francisco and instantly bonded over working in the software space and desperately trying to find a way to stop working for somebody else. Brett is filled with incredible stories, and he covers everything from taking a leave of absence in college to live in Southeast Asia to being inspired to start his business after being screamed at on a sales call. He's one of the wisest and most interesting people I know, but enough about my dude crush on Brett. Let's get to the interview. What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of What Made You Do It. This is your host, Sam Moore. I'm here today with the one and only Brett Ungashik. And Brett is the founder of OutSale. We're going to go in-depth into all of the things that are OutSale. Um, but what made me want him on the, the episode today was that he is actually the first peer of mine to take the entrepreneurial leap. And I owe basically all of my early days and early progress to all the questions that I would ask him about how to do anything. Um, but Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Excited to be here. Excited to have you here. Um, the way I like to start this off is just put it on you in terms of if you're at a networking event or um, any anywhere where you're meeting somebody new for the first time, how do you introduce yourself slash what do you say you do? Yeah. I've had the opportunity to do this a lot recently with the fundraising that we're going through. So try to get the story dialed in a little bit. Um, the basic story for what I do and what Outtail does is we help businesses find the right HR software. Um, I got into this five years ago because I used to sell HR software and I realized that the people I was selling to were incredibly overwhelmed. They didn't know what they were doing and everyone was trying to figure out how to sell software better to them but no one was trying to figure out how to help them buy it better. And so mm. it was kind of a paradigm shift of like, let's work for the buyer and let's build a service around them. And so that's kind of stumbled me upon a five-year journey of um, figuring out really what that means, building a service around that, and now um, building some technology around it to hopefully take it to another level. Love it. Very exciting stuff. We were talking about that a little bit before we started recording. Um, I want Before we get to the, do to the uh, out sale past five years, want to rewind to like early days, little Brett in Kansas City, uh, kind of get to know you and, and, and understand what got you to the point of going all in. So uh, you were you born in Kansas City? Born in Kansas City. Okay. Yep. Um, and family still lives there? Family's still there. Yep. And, you know, I can give a little bit of context for like the entrepreneurial journey. Um, I think, and I'm curious if you feel the same way having these interviews with different people that have started things. I think there's something almost like genetic or inherent to people that want to start companies where you almost see it from an early age and there's kind of patterns that they all display because um, for me, you know, I grew up, my grandfather started a business. So it wasn't foreign to me. It was something that like seemed normal, right? Like entrepreneurs in the family. Uh, my uncle also started a business. He was an uncle I was really close with. So like had a couple examples of that. And then I think also just like, inherent personality type mm -hmm. um you know i think there's like the big five personality traits and one of them is like i forget it's something related to um how you feel about authority mm -hmm. <laughs> and i was certainly the kid that got in trouble a lot in high school and it wasn't that i had trouble with authority per se but it was authority that i thought was like unjustified and so um i think those characteristics definitely lead people to be like i can't sit in an office all day and take orders and just be part of like a you know, big machine, like I, I'm going to be someone that is going to do things a little differently. Uh, so those were all like, I think, characteristics I had growing up. And in high school, my first job was working at a car wash. Mm. And actually, um, the car wash company is expanded to Denver. So you may have seen waterways around town. That's, yeah, yeah. that's where my first job was. Cool. Um, and maybe a year into it, maybe not even maybe like six months into it, I remember the whole point of the job, we got paid really low money and it was all about tips. And so you just wanted to clean cars as fast as you could so you could get as many tips as possible during your shift. And every once in a while, they would, the managers would grab us and be like, hey, you got to come off the line and you've got to do a detail. And a detail is going to be a 30, 45 minute project. And if you get stiffed on that, like you would have lost out or if you get a small tip, you know, you just it ruined your day. Yeah. And so I was like really frustrated one day with the manager and I was like, why do I have to come off the line? He's like, 
do you not understand how this works? He goes, it's $120 that we sell this detail for and it costs us 37 cents in product. And I was like, oh, I'm getting middled. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to start a car detailing business. <laughs> <laughs> Literally like grabbed a guy from work and after hours we like started handing out flyers for this car detailing business and we were like borrowing supplies from the company, not returning them. Mm -hmm. um, so we were just like, let's do this. Let's start detailing. Let's make way more money. And it went from, I used to have to work, you know, four, eight hour shifts a week, something like that, to I could make the same money working three to six hours a week. And I would just hire my friends to come with me. Like I could do it myself, but I'd just be like, you know, this friend slept over last night because we were out the night before. Like, Hey, do you want to come with me? We're each going to make 200 bucks. And so it was like more independence, more control, more profits. I was like, this is awesome. And yeah. so, you know, got to college and it was very much like, I want to be an entrepreneur. But I remember when I left for left for college, I tried to sell the business to a kid that was like a year below me. Didn't really work out. He wasn't <laughs> as motivated, but it was like, I thought I was going to be running it from college. And mm -hmm. I thought um, when I got to college, I was going to start a iPhone repair business because mm. I, I had read about one. It was like this high growth company out of the Bay Area. And tried to fix an old iPhone on my own and failed miserably. So that got crossed off. But um, a little different skill set detailing cars than fixing iPhones, I feel like. I don't have steady hands. <laughs> <laughs> it was not for me. It was very Were precise. you just like holding tweezers and oh, trying? Yeah. 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 It was, you need like a blower to like heat some stuff up. That's not for me. Yeah. It didn't work out. Yeah. Uh, but in college, you know, kind of kept that going and it was like, okay, I want to be an entrepreneur. I heard about like a business plan competition um, mm. and I heard about it through some upperclassmen. There's, and where did you go to school, by the way? Uh, this is at Vanderbilt. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So a couple seniors came into a class that I was in and were like, hey, we're running this, we're presenting in this business plan competition. We already have the idea, but we're not going to win if we don't have like underclassmen as succession plans. And so I was like, yeah, I'd love to do this. Um, put on a suit, gave this presentation in front of like stakeholders at the school got $25,000 grant to start. Oh, you this. guys won? We won. Yeah. 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 Not, yeah. not shocking as being your friend. I know, <laughs> I know you just win things, but, uh, it was, um, that came out the, it was like in the student newspapers, like business plan competition winners on the very same edition. It was like, um, Vanderbilt student arrested for, <laughs> I was like in the paper twice. Oh, good. Was just drinking. But I like, my parents saw it and they were like, we don't know if we can be mad at you or like <laughs> praise you. Like this is a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, so that independent streak, um, you're seeing kind of the, the good and the bad of it at yeah. the same time. Um, so we won that business plan competition. They actually gave us some office space, like some real retail space in the student commons. And the business was a bike rental business. Mm -hmm. So um, we put a mailer in the the package that goes out to students right before they come to campus hey if you want a bike sign up order it now and it'll be there when you show up and so it was either a semester long or a year long rental mm -hmm. and then we also had some daily ones but the economics of that were bad because people would have to actually sit there and you know, rent them out each day totally um so that went pretty well i think what i found out was the people that i was in it with were not people i really wanted to work with and they mm. they all we're doing this because they wanted to take big corporate jobs and like consulting. And so they wanted to run this student college business like a consulting project. And like, it was just so uncreative and stifling that I was like, gave it about a year and was like, you know what, this, this isn't what I want to spend a lot of my valuable college hours on. So you realized you were going to be a, a line on a case study and not uh, actually building a business. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I did not do anything like that in college. That's super interesting to me. And um, I don't know, go back to what you were mentioning earlier in terms of the, the, the innate trait. Like, I think I have that innate trait, but I did not have the exposure to entrepreneurship early on. So that as a, an option didn't really like come into my purview really like until much later in life. Um, but it's cool that, you know, the, you were just, you were, seeing problems, solving them. And like, I don't know with the, uh, the image that came to mind when he was like, we charge a hundred dollars, it's 37 cents of, of, of product was just like that. Uh, the, um, 
whatever the the scene in the hangover with all the numbers and everything when he's going to yeah that was uh you just it all clicked and you're like i can just do this myself and make all of the money yeah, yeah. our product costs zero dollars <laughs> yeah, yeah um okay so what years were you doing that or like how old were you when you did so the i was plan? 18 19 is like first two years of college that yeah was running the bike business um after that that summer end of sophomore year going into junior year i really wanted to stay in nashville and mm -hmm. spend a summer there and so it went through actually the people that we presented to the ones that gave us the grant they were kind of some entrepreneurs and different people connecting the community it was just like hey are there any startups i can get involved with like any just you know at that time i think it was 2013 i think social network had come out just a handful of years ago like getting into tech mm -hmm. being part of the startup scene was like the most exciting thing i could think of and so you know put some feelers out but never got like any solid like people were like hey yeah we'll we'll pass along the you know your interest to other people but you never know if that's real or not mm -hmm. and then i get an email from the ceo of this tech company in nashville and he's like hey um found out about you through so-and-so do you want to come in for an interview and so i click on a signature and see what they do and it's just like a generic landing page so you can't tell too much but what I can tell is that it's something with professional athletes and video games. And I was like, hell yes. Yeah, like, I'm going <laughs> yes. And so I show up and what they're doing. So the founder, there's two guys. Um, one of them is a um, guy out of business school. He's, and then the other guy was a former professional athlete, former Chicago Bear, mm. Hunter Hillenmeyer. Hunter Hillen, I know the name. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Linebacker with Lance Briggs and Brian Erlach mm -hmm. around the, yeah. Um, and he went to Vanderbilt. And so that was the connection. And so they get to telling me that like, yeah, what we're going to do is like when um, athletes want to play video games with their fans, we're going to have an app for them where they can like issue challenges and we'll have a matching algorithm and their fans can jump in and get mm. matched to play with them. Sounds so sick. Yeah. I'm so in. Yeah. Like you don't have to pay me. I'm going to do this. It sounds so fun. Mm -hmm. And so I remember that summer, one of my jobs was no matter where I was, I had to keep an Xbox with me. Sure. Because there, we, we had done a really good job of like using his network and other ways to access athletes and kind of getting them excited, giving them care packages, getting them to like start issuing challenges. But we hadn't really built out the the user network. Yeah. And so the last thing they wanted was like for an athlete to go through the trouble of using this and get no hits. And so I would respond to every single request. Oh my God. And I would win most of them because we had very few users. So I'd like run into someone's house plug in the Xbox and start playing like Matt Forte in Call of Duty <laughs> or like David Price in NHL, which I'd never played before. It was electric. It was like, this is the greatest job I'll ever have. I'm and, just, and were you like talking to them? Was this yeah, like yeah, on the headset, yeah. hanging out with these guys? Um, the most, the coolest part for me was um, Call of, sorry, Activision had their new Call of Duty game came out and they issued an RFP We'll give you 250k to anyone that applies if you can justify like how this is going to help us sell call of duty so we're like we'll use that money we'll get some star running backs in the nfl to all play the new game together and so we got adrian peterson um jamal charles marshawn lynch forgetting a couple others like the biggest names at the position to all agree to be a part of this we we're like a four or five person team so every person on the team had to go to the individual cities and be there for the filming so I went to Kansas City, where I'm from, to Jamal Charles' house, like their star player. Oh, my God. Knock on his door, like, hey, I'm here to help film this. And, you know, we're, we've got a camera crew there. We, they all get set up. And he and I are just, like, sitting on his couch for hours, just playing video games, like, taking shots. Like, not shots, like, get, getting, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that was shots. later. That was after the, uh, the filming happened. So, yeah, that was, like, man, this is really cool. But then it turns out that, like, there's no business behind the app. And so... I think I had told the founder that, um, not very delicately. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, we have a good relationship, but uh, it's still something we laugh about. He's yeah. like, yeah, you, you told me my app sucked. I was putting my whole life into this. Just 19-year-old Brett just being like, hey, hey, mister, uh, this is never going to make money. <laughs> I think he knew deep down it wasn't. I think that's why it hurt the most. Yeah, but you're doing, like, I feel like that's, not to take us on a tangent, but it, you can get wrapped up in just the cool shit that you get exposed to or get to do when you're building this business that 
it, at its core will do nothing to actually build the business. But it's just, I don't know, we got six of the top running backs in the NFL that are playing Call of Duty through this app. And yeah, I just feel like there's you can get wrapped up in it. Yeah, and especially in that era, like 2013 tech, it was all about excitement. It was all about growth. It was kind of like how they t- described the dot-com boom these days. It was mm-hmm. just like, yeah, we'll figure out business plans later. And yeah. so it was part of the the timing too. Yeah. Um, okay, so I was after your sophomore year. I know that you took a semester off. Was that like the following year? Okay. Because um, this... I remember we, I'd known you for like two years before I actually heard the story of you just like effing off to, uh, to Southeast Asia, but I would love to ex- introduce the rest of the audience into that. Yeah, so it actually happened at the same time, so great segue. Um, it was that summer I was working for the tech company, the mm-hmm. sports tech company, and in the evenings I was spending time with people in Nashville, and it wasn't the same people that I would see during the school year. Like everyone was gone, and so it was kind of new crowds. And there's this one person I met who we would hang out in the evenings and he started telling me about how he took a gap year between high school and college. And during his gap year, he went to Southeast Asia and this guy was a nut. I mean, he was doing some really wild stuff. Mm -hmm. He was like, yeah, you know, I wanted to go up the Mekong River. So I went down to the port and no one spoke English. And I just signed to him and was like, hey, I want to ride up on this fishing boat with you. And got heat stroke in some village, like just crazy. And I was like, I really want to do not all that, but like <laughs> some of that. And it was just like, it was one of those things where like, I don't know, I kind of always envisioned doing something like really adventurous like mm-hmm. that. But to your point earlier, is like you, you need the example for it to become tangible. And seeing that example, I was like, oh my God, now I know someone that's done this. Mm-hmm. And he's not that different from me. And I can ask him for advice and I can get all my questions answered. So it really planted a seed with me. And it was definitely like, so first semester of junior year, I was starting to lose interest in the software company that I was working at, at the same time, really gain interest in taking a semester off and going to Southeast Asia. Talk about an intoxicating thought. I mean, it's just like, oh yeah, I could I could sit here in this lecture hall or go on a random riverboat uh, in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And it was junior year. It was where a lot of people at the school were going abroad. Mm -hmm. And so that was also kind of building on it was like, I was seeing people I knew in foreign countries doing cool things, but there was a part of what they were doing that seemed a little fake to me. It was like, we're just over here with our, you know, American friends going to all the same places that everyone the year before us went, still have to go to class. Like it just felt like there was a a real authentic experience that was being missed there. And so this felt like a perfect opportunity. I had enough credits coming into college that I was going to graduate a semester early. And I was mm-hmm. like, that sounds terrible. Why would I do that? <laughs> and so I was like, what if I took this semester off now and just graduated on time with the rest of my friends? So um, really the final hurdle, like my brain is like, yes, this is a great plan. Final hur- hurdle was like, I need to convince my parents. Mm-hmm. And so I remember calling my parents and telling them, hey, I'm going to take a semester off. I'm going to go to Southeast Asia by myself and, you know, hope you guys are okay with it. And they're like, no, like, call us later. Like, absolutely not. Like, shut it down. <laughs> and we went back and forth for a couple of weeks. And I think really they just, they enjoyed their college experience so much. And they're like, this time is going to fly by. Like, why do you want to leave? Are you sure this is what you want to do? And I was like, I'm absolutely certain. Like, this is so important to me. Like, I don't think I can become the person I want to be if I'm not listening to my heart telling me to like take this adventure, Mm. take this chance, like really do something risky. Like if I ignore that, I don't think it's just going to impact like me in a little way. I think it'll impact me in a big way. And so Mm. like, it was like, I really need to, and they started to hear me. And, you know, I think when I explained it to them like that, of just like, I have to do this. My dad called me back and he goes, Hey, I don't get it. It's not what I would have done but I support you. Mm. And I was like, that's the coolest thing you could have said. I got like chills from just that. That's really fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, Went, you know, withdrew from school. January comes around. Everyone goes back to school and I get on a plane to Bangkok and show up there. And as the plane's leaving, I'm just like, I am so terrified. Like I thought this was going to be so cool. And 
every mile I'm getting further, further away from everyone I know, everything I know. All my friends are coming back to school. The group texts are firing off. They seem to be having a great time. I miss them. And, you know, just get there and it's like, I need to figure this out now. Like, I'm here, but like, what is this all about? And there was a, like the second or third day, I remember I went to a coffee shop and I had a beer and I was journaling and just like kind of settling in. And all of a sudden I had this deep breath come over me. And it was like the deepest breath I've ever taken. I still think about this all the time. It was like, like I came in and like, I could have inhaled forever. It was just like, and then when I exhaled, it was like ecstatic. It was like mm. this emotional thing. And it, was, and it, and I was like, holy shit, this is like the coolest feeling I've ever experienced. And it was happening. And I was trying to like, one, enjoy it, but also like try to analyze it. And as the more I analyzed it, the less I felt it, right? Of course, it's like, I was grasping at it. But it was this sign that I took that it was like, yeah, this is hard, but this is 100% the right thing to do. It was like, you are exactly in the place that you're supposed to be right now. And it was like so, so reassuring. And it's something that I've had that experience only one other time about five years later and then like felt near it recently. And it's something that like someday I want to like write a book about like the breath and what it means and mm -hmm. how to seek it out. And like, it's just, it's this like internal locus telling me like, you're exactly on the right path and it's crazy that it's only happened like a couple times my whole life but it's also crazy that I th i've done the math before but it's like how many breaths i've taken in my life and i can still pinpoint two of them as being like so important and meaningful that it's like there's something there yeah i mean that's you know one of the books that i read that had the biggest impact on me is breath that you recommended uh which i'm sure you read years after maybe it was around the time of the second one um but not to take us in a different direction, but like you are maybe the most like mindful, peaceful, like just person that I know. Um, and I'm curious if that's because you even mentioned at this point you were, you know, journaling in a coffee shop. I didn't start journaling until I was like 25, 26, you know, I was like into my career and I read it in enough books that this was good for you that I started doing it. Is that something you were doing like in childhood or high school, college, or I guess, how did you get exposed to these kind of like mindful practices? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I really only started journaling in a significant way on that trip mm -hmm. where I was just like, I want to capture each day and just have something to look back on. But then it was a practice that I tried to carry forward. Um, one thing that I've kind of recognized about you know, trying to discover this peace of mind and like kind of maintain that like feeling of being close to the true path, if not on it, mm -hmm. is you know, it takes me to the time that we spent in San Francisco and, you know, not to get ahead of the story too much, but during that time, I think was probably the most that I was reading up on tactics for, you know, mental wellness. And I was going to young urban Zen and doing meditation and, you know, just trying to you know, reading more books than I ever, like just doing all these things that the books say are, you know, the right things to do. Mm -hmm. And then after San Francisco, coming to Denver, two big things changed. And I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff, but yeah, I think it's important. Um, I got to Denver and I started the company that I'm working with now, Outsale. Mm -hmm. I went from working a job that I didn't like to doing something that I loved. And I went from doing a long distance relationship with my now wife to living with her. Mm -hmm. And it was crazy how all these hacks and all these like things I was doing in San Francisco didn't even come close to what those things did. Yeah. And it was a big lesson for me of like, if the big things in your life are there, you don't need the hacks quite as much. And they weren't bad per se, but they were definitely crutches. They were never going to like all the meditating, all the reading, all the, you know, journaling was never going to like get me to the point of feeling completely mm -hmm. where I need to be. It was great for keeping me above water while like the, the ocean was really rough and it was, you know, my head was able to stay up and I was able to kind of keep a clear line of sight, but it wasn't going to get me to the point that I wanted to. And it, so, you know, I think they're very helpful tools, but they're, they're supposed to be supports. They're supposed to be like crutches to help you, but they're not going to be the ones that actually like the tools that actually get you feeling totally in 
unified mind, body, spirit in what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and it's so like you're when you're operating at a deficit, right? Like you can only get yourself. It raises you to a certain level, but if you the rest, if you are like aligned in every other part, then you're starting at such a head start that it's just you're already surpassing what the meditation and everything would do. Totally. And now that like I have some of those bigger things in a place that I'm really happy with, then adding on like journaling mm -hmm. and meditation and things like that, it's been great. You know, it's not like they're, they're, they're obviously awesome. Yeah. It's just important to remember like what purpose they serve, which is kind of like, like you said, they, they can't move you up a whole tier. Mm -hmm. Once you're on that tier, they can kind of move you within it. But you know, the, it's really the big things of like your relationships, your, the work that you do, how you spend your time. That's going to be the stuff that's really going to account for the big portion of how you feel. Yeah. Well, and we're going to go back to the, uh, to Southeast Asia. Cause I have yeah. a couple more questions about that. Um, but kind of moving along on the path. So you end up graduating college and we end up meeting in San Francisco. Um, you moved there right after school. Yep. Okay. Uh, and you went to, you went to work for LinkedIn. What shout out, shout out LinkedIn and all the, all the homies that we still have from, from those days. Um, how did you, the process of like choosing San Francisco, LinkedIn, um, cause I know you also like interned with them too. So tell me about that. Yeah. Um, I knew I should probably, even while I was in Southeast Asia, I should probably figure out some like internship for my junior <laughs> summer, which, you know, I think it's very easy for people that get the wanderlust and travel abroad mm -hmm. to be like, I want to do this forever. Cause Ever. it is intoxicating. Like it is every day is really exciting, really meaningful. You're around really cool people, seeing really cool shit, eating great food. Like it's awesome. But there was sort of an observation that I was having, which is like a little is good. A lot might not be so good. Mm. And I saw people that have been like on the road for decades and they didn't seem to be like any more peaceful than the average person working a nine to five, right? It was like, there was something that they hadn't really resolved. And this might just be like, covering it up and so I was like okay I don't think that I want to do this forever but there were times like there was someone I met that he was like hey instead of doing a summer internship like I live in Bhutan and I have this boys school and like you can come teach there and like that sounds really fucking cool like <laughs> basically gonna live in a monastery yeah but I was like I do want to still kind of have a relatively normal American life and like I do really enjoy my family and want to get back close to them and and so, you know, I think that part kept drawing me back to a little bit more of a traditional path. And I really only had one lead for a summer internship, which is a person I knew from home who worked at LinkedIn. Mm. And so I was doing all these interviews from internet cafes in Southeast Asia. Like I remember having to pay the owners of the cafe to stay open till like 1 a.m. so I could get there and be on time. But you know, when they're interviewing people, that's a pretty standout interview. <laughs> like this guy is. Yeah, what What's your background? <laughs> oh, is that the is that a jungle? Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. So they were interested. I got the summer internship with LinkedIn in Chicago, and mm -hmm. you know, being a Midwestern guy, I thought Chicago was kind of like the end all be all. The right? mecca. Yeah, yeah, I was like, that's where I want to be. This is going to be it. Got up there, spent a summer up there, liked it, but didn't fall in love, which surprised me. I was like, I thought this was supposed to be it, and it's Chicago in the summer, which is amazing but yeah. you know i think the thing that i felt was um it's very drinking centered right everything about it is like let's drink and go to the cubs game let's drink and go to happy camper let's drink and go to the park like it was all just like drink and and for the final part of my internship they flew us out to san francisco for like a presentation and i got out there and immediately it was like this is what i'm looking for this is way more creative and open and nature and just had all these elements that were like very much speaking to me. And so you know, the, the offer they gave me was to go work in the San Francisco office. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Done. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I kind of knew probably from day one that like LinkedIn, maybe 10,000 employees at the time was going to be not for me, but it was a foot in the door to get out to Silicon Valley. And, you know, that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in tech. It was a great brand to have on my um, resume, but Again, I, I kind of knew from day one that like big company is going to be a little challenging for me. Yeah. Well, you know, to go back to you, uh, you couldn't, 
you couldn't handle the authority of like a seven person car washing place. Uh, the bureaucracy of LinkedIn, I'm, I'm sure was uh, a different, a different animal, but uh, I mean, as you're telling me that, that going back to you, you knowing that you wanted to go back to kind of normal life, it's I, I see these like trips. They're great to, you know, it's like shaking the snow globe. You need to let everything settle again. So it's like the, the trip is shaking the snow globe and the people that stay there are just like the most shaken up forever. There's no, there's no settling. They have no home type like to tie to. Um, so I, I really like fully agree with that kind of assessment of, of where there's a model that I've thought of before, which is like exposure and integration. Mm -hmm. And it's like getting exposed to new things is awesome, but you also have to take the time to integrate it into yourself and like make yourself more complex and like take the best of it, figure out how it works for you and then expose yourself again and like kind of do this seesaw. And I think that's exactly what you're saying, which is like, if you're just doing exposure, you're not integrating it into yourself, into yeah. the life that you had before. And you can just really lose sight of things. Well, and none of it will stick, right? Like you could have these really beautiful illuminating moments, but then they're gone because the next you're just in the next one. It's like um, the girl that comes back is like, well, in Barcelona. And you're <laughs> like, you didn't actually incorporate the, you just, it didn't stick for you. Like yeah. you actually thought it was cool, but you didn't learn the lessons, incorporate them to who you are. So now you're just kind of that obnoxious person that went abroad. <laughs> and that's, I, so I went to, I did my study abroad semester in Manchester and I, I only went there because, um, a kid a year older than me did the reverse exchange. So he came from Manchester to U of I. And, um, I remember the, for the business school, you have to put three down and I had two. One was, I think it was like, one was Vienna in Austria and the other one was like Berlin in Germany. So, you know, not like you're prototypical Barcelona, but uh, pretty close. And then I needed a third and I was like, James, should I just do Manchester? And I don't think many people put Manchester down. So they just automatically put me in there. Uh, but what was, what was so cool about it is because it was a native English speaking country, instead of me being put in a, a home or an apartment with other American students that were there, I was just thrown into a flat with seven other first year British students. So it's it was like such a cool, like I got a true... Um, I woke up and lived the life of a Ma University of Manchester student, which I just feel like most people don't get when they go to these, you know, somewhere in Florence or, or whatnot um, when they're abroad. Yeah, especially when they go with all their buddies. Exactly. Right? It's like, you know, I've done abroad trips. So I did that Southeast Asia one solo, and then I did a South America trip with some friends after college. And that one we had, you know, a group of, it was four. It wasn't a huge group, but I met so many fewer people. Mm -hmm. And you just, you know, it's, nothing wrong with that. I love my friends. Like, yeah. I, it's always going to be easier to hang out with them. And so yeah, I think that part is also the great part about your experience is that you had to put yourself out there and meet people. Yeah. Um, and I also love the, you know, that feeling you had going to San Francisco. I, so I visited San Francisco for the first time, February, 2015. Um, so I think it was, it would have been 2014 that you were I was um, summer of 2015 as well. Oh, summer. 20, okay. Yep. So same time, like I moved there in May and I just still remember there was something about San Francisco at that time where it's just like energetically you get off the plane and you're like, this is different. Like this, what is, whatever's happening here, th talk about an intoxicating feeling. Like I, I went there for a weekend to visit two friends that live there. And three months later I, I was living there. It's just like, I, this is cause I was living in Chicago too. And again, I grew up Chicagoland, love Chicago. I'll be back there next week. Um, but something fundamentally was just like misaligned with me. And I think a lot of it had to do with how drinking centric and just an, an unhealthier person when I am living there for a long time, because it's just so easy to get consumed in, in how readily available these, you know, fun things. And there's always alcohol there. Um, and then to, to be thrown in, in San Francisco, it's just like, it's a whole different vibe. Um, and I think so, I'm now drawing the connection of why I loved Manchester so much is just being dropped into this kind of foreign place that I had some people around me that would like, you know, ground me, but I was virtually on my own, like rinse, repeat, do that in San Francisco. And that's, you know, no, no surprise that that became like a very transformative period of my life. Yeah. No, I think we're, we both share the theme of like loving, like being scared when we go into it, but loving being thrown into something that's challenging and being like, I'm going to have to struggle to make this work for me, but I know it's going to be worth it. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. We, we were talking about that before this too. It's just like, I'm got, got some big announcements coming up a little nervous energy and that's just how that's, 
you talk about the breath, like that's how I know I'm in the right place. Like if, if I'm feeling not like debilitating anxiety, but like just a little bit of like, you know, I'm, I'm humming, <laughs> like yeah. I'm in a, a higher f- uh, frequency than normal, like that's heading in the right direction. So when I was in Southeast Asia and actually before I went, um, one of the realizations that was driving home this feeling of like, I need to leave this amazing co- school and all my friends and do this was I was feeling like the good days and the bad days weren't that different. Mm. And it was this feeling of like, the highs weren't that high, the lows weren't that low. It's just kind of on this like steady pace. And I started thinking about it in the in the view of like a uh, like a heart monitor. And it was like, I'm flatlining. And That's exactly what came to my mind while you're sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, I go to Southeast Asia and while I experienced some incredible highs, some like beautiful sights and cool people, there were some really shitty times too. Like I, I remember I got sick. I got on the bus. It was the wrong bus. I go to a town that I had no idea where I was. This is back before you could just like turn your phone on and mm-hmm. get local service. So I had no idea where I was. Got there at like 2 a.m. at a bus stop. Don't know what town this is. Don't have any plans. Just start walking down the street. Go to this place. And like ask if I can stay. And they're like, it's not really a hotel, but there's like a mattress with no sheets on it. And I'm like sick as a dog. Yeah. And I'm like, this is the low that makes the high mm-hmm. actually feel so high. And, you know, I think that's, Anytime, like you're saying, having that nervous energy, it's like, this is kind of sucks. I wish I didn't, but you know, it's going to lead to something really positive rather than not having feelings and not feeling stressed or scared or like you're risking something. Yeah. Well, and, and as somebody that kind of like experiences somewhat frequent anxiety too, it's like, it's so interesting that the desire at times is like, I want to feel nothing, but like I, I am seeking the flatlining. That's like, wait, if you don't have the lows, you can't have the highs. And it's just, it, that's, that's quite literally life. Um, and you could probably say this better than me as you've experienced some of those spaces, but it, like, isn't it, the Buddha says like life is suffering. And it's like, if you don't experience suffering, you don't experience life. And that's just, uh, I don't know. I, th- I think about that often in, yeah. in the low points. Yeah. No, it's, it's just really turning, like everyone's going to have low points. Everyone's going to have obstacles, but it's, it's reframing them mm-hmm. just like you did saying, okay, this is what's necessary. And like when something challenging happens, not saying this sucks, but being like, this is my opportunity. Like I can really grow from this or I can add something to myself by experiencing this. Like that reframing goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So not to fast forward through the days of LinkedIn, I'm sure they were glorious, lovely. Um, most skippable part. Though. Most skippable part. Yeah. <laughs> the only highlights were wing Wednesdays at, at lightning. That was, those were amazing. Um, but so you end up, you end up leaving LinkedIn and going to a company called Doximity. Um, and that, like, Doximity, from what I remember, was very similar to LinkedIn, but it's focused towards doctors. Um, and, yeah, that's that's the last company you work at before you go to OutSale. But maybe tell talk a little bit about Doximity, and then we'll, we'll de- dive deeper into the, the eventual, you know, taking the plunge. Yeah, so um, Doximity, so I left LinkedIn because of a man which mm-hmm. is why most people leave companies, right? It was just like bad experience, found Doximity, and it was a much smaller company, 200 employees. And the team that I was on was really small. And so it was what I was looking for. I just want a little more freedom, a little less bureaucracy. I got in there and I was like leading this team, working on really creative projects. I was getting paid really well and everything about it was awesome. And yeah. I didn't have to work that hard. That was the thing. I was also like putting less mental energy into work. I loved it. It was great. And that less mental energy gave me time because there were things outside of work that I wanted to focus on. Right. And I was talking about like in San Francisco work, even though Doximity is better, it still wasn't like, this is my purpose. Nourishing to your soul. Yeah. Right. My now wife was still, we were doing long distance. So I got really into writing at that point and was reading some really great books and started going to the Zen center. I just had all this energy left over at the end of the workday because Doctor is so good to then invest in myself and mm-hmm. start like thinking about what do I really want? What's important to me? And about October of that year, I took all these things that I had read and I was just reading all these awesome books and experiencing this great stuff in, in meditation and just kind of gathering a lot of wisdom. But to the point of like incorporating it, I hadn't done the incorporation mm-hmm. part yet. It was so much big stuff about like where to find purpose and meaning that I was like, I need to just try to write about this. And so I created this five-part series called The Vitality Project. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea was, is it possible to feel that 
heart rate up and down exhilaration of life that I felt in Southeast Asia while in the confounds confines of a normal American nine to five. Like, can you bring the best of that and like still experience all the highs, lows, joys, growth within these boundaries? And, and so it was kind of just talking through my journey um, talking through what I had learned and how I tried to incorporate these and was just like, hey, like, I'm going to put this out there because I'm sure other people are struggling with this feeling of like, hey, I got the college degree. I got the job. Now what? Mm-hmm. How do I, where do I find my purpose? And this is like, you can find your purpose in just like a really fulfilling day to day with the right mindset, the right habits, the right activities. Um, so that put that out on Facebook and got like hundreds of responses back. People that I barely knew just been like, this really spoke to me. Can I talk to you on the phone? It was like really cool. It was like one of the most vulnerable things I've done. Yeah. And it was like, wow, this, this is really fun. I, rem- I, I remember that. I kind of forgot until you started talking about it again, but I, I still remember. I, I have always loved writing too, but I hadn't even thought like a moment of thought to like put publish anything for other people to consume. Um, and I remember being like, damn, Brett, this is, this is so cool. Like the, and yeah, so sorry to cut you no, off. No, no. Yeah. So, so that was like the end of 28, 2017. I was like feeling really inspired by writing and helping people and finding purpose and all these different things. And then right at that time I was already planning on leaving San Francisco um, in six months because my wife was going to be finishing grad school and we wanted to move somewhere kind of in between. She was in New York. I was in San Francisco. So I was already like expecting a transition. I was feeling really inspired by again this, this work that I had just put out and kind of this new capability I tapped into. And then at the end of the year, the company Doximity was going through a restructure and they were like, basically, instead of selling recruitment software, we're going to become recruiters. We're going to start cold calling doctors and trying to get them to take jobs in Wyoming. And they're like, because that's not what you signed up for, not me, to everyone. They were like, um, we're going to give you the option. Either you're all in on this and this is the new vision or here's five months severance. And I was like, oh, shit, like I'm ready to make a transition. I'm about to move five months. Like, when am I ever going to have an opportunity like this? I know from my high school and college experience, I want to start a business someday. Like, I don't have a house i don't have kids like this is the time i got to take it and go even though i love the company Mm -hmm. so end of 2017 take the severance move back in with my parents and then start working on whatever's next and immediate rush so when i make the decision in my head i'm going to take the severance that was the second time i ever felt that breath Mm. i was at home in san francisco i was actually laying in a bathtub and it just hit me again and I was like, oh my God, there it is. And it was just like, sit there and just take it all in. And it was like, fuck yeah, this is definitely the right choice. Like mm. I was so scared, but I feel it. This is definitely the right choice. I go home, I move home and two weeks of exhilaration and then a huge crash, <laughs> huge crash. Just, yeah, dude. Cause I didn't realize, even though I didn't love the work, how much it meant to me. Mm-hmm. I probably had some ego tied into Silicon Valley, you know, name brand company. Um, and just day-to-day purpose. Like people were relying on me. I had stuff to get up for. All that gone. Yeah. And I was like, that's what I wanted, right? I wanted freedom to like define the next. And I was like, maybe too much freedom. <laughs> I remember like going for walks with my parents at the end of the night. And I remember one in particular where I was the most depressed I've ever been. Just a fog over me. Mm-hmm. Like couldn't even hear. It was like like the Charlie Brown wah, 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 voices. Yeah. Like it was just like, holy shit, I'm not well. And so what I learned from that was like, I need to have positive forward momentum even if it's not like i was kind of getting stuck on this idea of what's the perfect path and it was like you just need a path (laughs) (laughs) just take a step yeah Yeah. and so that's where i was like okay what have i done in my career i have done sales development and so i'll start an outsourced sales development company there's companies out there that could use my expertise so i started outsale outsourced sales development Mm -hmm. and reached out to a bunch of founders that had just raised investor capital and said, Hey, you know, I'm guessing that you have pressure to grow. I can help you start getting leads and selling your, your product. Um, and you can then take your time and not rush into hiring some really foundational people on your sales team. It's a beautiful sales email, by the way. So. It, was, it was a good sales pitch. <laughs> I was able to get some people signed up and I started to like feel better. I was mm-hmm. working again, still had a lot of time in my day to like write and do other things. But I pretty quickly realized, like, I don't want to spam people for a living. That's what this is. It's just an endless game of, like, 
sending out as many emails as possible. Spam people so they can let you spam other people on their behalf. Right, right. <laughs> it was just this whole thing. It was like, I don't see how I could grow this. Mm-hmm. I'm not developing skills or anything. It's just, it's just kind of static. And so that was really hitting me, um, you know, that first half of the year. I was still living with my parents, and I was about ready to move to Denver with, with my now wife. And Which we can shout out Callie. Shout out Callie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my now wife Callie will will use you by your name. Yeah, so. Callie's got a name now. <laughs> um, and there was one night that I was laying in bed and I had just read a very famous um, Naval tweet stream. And I like, you know, people still resurface it. There's books built around. It. Like it's a really cool tweet thread. But this is yeah. like the day it came out. Like I remember reading it for the first time. Wow. And it just hit me at the perfect time and it spoke to me and it was like. Here's how I want to say it's like how to get wealthy without getting lucky or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And there was this sense that I always had in all my sales experiences, which is something I alluded to earlier, which is these buyers. I had this one example where I called a woman, cold caller, and she picks up and I'm like, hey, it's Brett with Doc Semini, and she starts cursing me out. She's like, Cold call me. I'm in the middle of my day. I was like, I am so sorry. I caught you at the wrong time. The only reason I called, you have these open roles that look like they've been there for a year. We have a recruitment tool that caters to that. My bad. She was a customer two weeks later. And what that taught me was that her pain point around recruiting was way down here, really low. Her pain point around salespeople won't stop fucking calling me was way up here. (laughs) And all this venture capital, all these billions of dollars are being poured into the recruitment problem. No one was really trying to tackle that problem. And it was this nagging thought. And then finally, I was like, I don't like this spam work that I'm doing. I see this inspiring Naval tweet storm, and I'm like, that's the path. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I still have about five months of severance because I've been living with my parents. So I have another five months once I move to Denver to try another thing. Let's try another thing. So I called up all my customers and said, hey, we're pivoting. You've already been refunded. Sorry, it didn't work out. Um, changed the website and immediately just was like, we're going to pursue this other idea of building a service around the buyer and what that could potentially look like. Well, first, I so one of the questions I had for you was like, I still didn't really know what outsale meant, meant <laughs> and I love that that's what it means. Um, and okay, there's I, I wrote a, I wrote a couple of things down while you're talking. Uh, first, first one is the. Um, your the like a consistent theme of your life that I've seen is just like you are presented with an opportunity and you're willing to say yes, you know. And I think that's something that's come up a lot in uh, other things that I'm reading and listening to is just like everybody's exposed to the same opportunities, kind of like at a large scale, not just in in life and whatnot. Um, but there's the people that are looking for them and there's the people that aren't. And if you're looking for them, then they come to you and you're able to say yes and you've proven time and again that like, hey, you have all these things going on. Here's five months severance. You're willing to be like, yep, I'm going to go just, you know, take it out. And then doing that, but like immediately hitting a low point. Um, and this is something kind of like a different, uh, a different piece of this, but your, I've thought a lot about how like these, like we do these practices, right? Like meditation, journaling, everything. They're so much fun to do when things are going good and when things are going bad i feel like that's when most people abandon them and there's something that hit me like three four years ago where i was at a low point and i had no interest in doing the meditation it was actually coincidentally right after listening to naval's interview on tim ferris podcast so that's where the symmetry uh, yeah. there but um that these practices are for the low points, right? Like it's it's not there. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, what's the point of doing this if I'm still gonna like end up feeling depressed at some point, like this is just worthless. It's like, no, this is, you're learning how to do this so that when you hit that point, you do those things and they pull you back up. Um, and I just kind of like, you didn't, you didn't mention that, but like on that walk, I can only imagine you going home and like journaling about that feeling and being like, this is not, this ain't it. I need to figure out something else. Totally. Yeah. So first on the like seeing opportunities, seeing obstacles as opportunities sort of, um, I think we've hit on like two of the three important details of that. One is like some people are just wired that way. Like I'm not trying to give myself too much credit. Like I think I just like 
am more again these are like personality traits that can be mapped and are like scientifically studied like i fall more on a spectrum of like open to new opportunities than more conservative traditional type of a mindset so that's part of it part of it is as you mentioned as well is like exposure like i saw my grandparent or my grandfather Mm -hmm. i saw my uncle i saw examples i saw the guy who had gone to southeast asia and so like exposure helps too is like it's nature and nurture. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the third part of it is you definitely have to, like, develop the skill set around it, right? It's like you could have the examples and the innateness, but there's still the you that has to say, I will do it despite the fears. Yeah. And, you know, to your, to your other point about, you know, those practices, it's, I think the word for it is just building resiliency, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. like we're going to have ups and downs, but if I have these practices to lean on during the downs... They're going to be shorter. They're going to be less severe. I'm going to be able to get back. And, you know, candidly, a couple, about a month ago, I had a feeling where I was like, I've kind of gotten away from who I want to be. Mm. Like, I'm just not kind of maximizing all these hopes and dreams I have for myself. I just felt like I was being more stressed, short with people, not showing up like I wanted to. And then I went and saw the movie Oppenheimer, which for whatever reason, it just knocked me down. It like really had an emotional reaction to me where it was like such a beautiful movie and about such a towering figure that it was almost like a mirror held up to me of like, this is greatness. This is a great technical movie and this is a great person. Are you great? And it kind of just got me to be like, okay, I need to change some things up and, you know, got back into journaling, mm-hmm. deleted some social media apps, like started to make some changes for no other reason than just like, I need to be better. Yeah. And then wouldn't you know it, a week and a half later, personal life gets really topsy-turvy. And I was like, thank fucking God (laughs) I built these practices up and turned them back on because this sucks. Yeah. But it's a lot less shitty than it could be. Yeah. Um, It's I mean, first of all, that movie was incredible. I one of my favorite movies I've seen in in a while. I went and saw it twice and cannot wait for it to come out again. Yeah, I'm I'm fucking thrilled. I might need to go see it a second time. but I, yeah, this like idea of it's having like personal standards or person, you know, you, I feel like this is converse, conversations I've had forever in my life with people much younger. It's like, you know, I think like I want to change the world. Like everyone has that moment at probably at like 16 to 20 where they're like, I want to do something huge. Um, and then it's like, lo and behold, that's really tough. And life kind of sucks for a while when you try to like do that type of thing. Um, and I feel like I've noticed the people that I see that are doing really impressive things are the ones that like have that thought, head down the path, and then while things get tough and they start to see themselves take the easier route and kind of you know cut corners or whatever it may be, they still have that image of like this is what I'm aspiring to be, and they're able to course correct back to that. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of that was, you know, you, you having this seeing greatness and, and wanting to head that direction. And I, I think there's something really important that I discovered in that like kind of six month period of living at home and going through this depression and then kind of figuring out a path was that I definitely want for myself to choose things that are more challenging, things that are going to make me grow. But I also kind of had to aim a little less high. Yeah, And I know that sounds weird because like you said, like everyone wants to change the world and do these big things. But you know, I kept being like, what's the business I can start that can pay my bills and let me live a comfortable life, but also drive all this meaning for people and impact their life. And it was like all these things I was trying to do and trying to find this perfect pathway that was going to check all these boxes for me. And that was just debilitating. That was just like paralysis by nothing that I came up with sounded like it was going to come close to this impossible standard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the realization to just be like, hey, why don't you just try to build a profitable business? doesn't even matter if it's changing the world, giving more purpose and meaning to people. Just start with half of the requirements you have and see if you can do that first because you've never done that. Like, how do you know that you can even do half of these things when you're trying to do this full spectrum of amazing things? And so it was like coming to terms with that and just being comfortable with the fact that it was like, hey, we're going to aim a little smaller, Mm -hmm. find this kind of sweet spot between Definitely challenging for me, but not so challenging that I want to give up. And, you know, that's where this business and this venture fell into. And, you know, I've learned so many things now and like developed more skills that like life's long. Like it feels like we're in a hurry and we got to do these things immediately. But like 
there's going to be other projects. There's going to be other things. And now I've got these awesome skills and this foundation that like, now the next thing I can aim a little higher, maybe it can be a little bit more altruistic, a little bit more purpose driven. And that's fine. Like it doesn't have to be all things all at once. Yeah. Well, it's, it, how can you get yourself to take that first step? Um, and that's, yeah, I, th- I think I was listening to an interview. I can't remember his name. His name's Gary something. Um, but he's like a video game designer. And he talks about how he does these consulting projects and everyone comes to him with like, I'm going to build the next like Call of Duty that also has element, you know, like in just this perfectly constructed Frankenstein of a game. And he's like, what if you just like started with a, like one thing, like one concept then? And because as soon as you try to do all of it, it is so overwhelming and just like smothering that you can't actually take any steps. Um, okay, I want to get to we the the grand the, the grand finale of uh, you actually going all in on the out sales side. Um, okay, so you had the outbound sales business. You decided to pivot. Tell me about out sale. Tell me about how like the so the pain point around people trying to sell people things, but no one trying to help people buy things. Yeah. Um, yep. So, you know, I had talked to these HR professionals for years trying to sell them software. They were overwhelmed to the point where they'd curse a nice kid like me out. <laughs> yeah. And for those on audio, he just looks so, he's such a sweet, nice man. It's a... <laughs> and, and so I was like, that's really interesting. And so I was like, okay, what does it look like to build a service for the buyer? And the first idea I had was like, like a, a plugin on your browser. And so you get a sales email, you click the plugin and it slides out and it's like, this person is with this company. Here's what they sell. Here's the price of it. Do you want to meet with them? Click yes. Do you want to tell them to fuck off? Hit no. Right. And so that was kind of like this working concept that I had. And it's a pretty cool concept. Yeah. 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 It's not bad. And then I was like, okay, I need to figure out if this is actually viable. And so I connected with I think 12,000 HR people. 12,000? Yeah. Oh my God. For like on LinkedIn every day, sending like hundreds of connection requests out to HR professionals just saying, hey, have this idea to like make your life easier. Um, If you take 15 minutes to talk to me about it, I'll send you a Starbucks gift card. And so my calendar for the first few months was just like 12, 15 minute blocks in a row of just talking to people, hang up, talk to people and started to get feedback from these people. And what was really interesting was that the feedback was almost always nonverbal. Like it wasn't someone on the other line being like, you know what you should do? This. It was me thinking, hey, this is the thing, right? This is mm-hmm. what they're going to, this is going to get get them hooked. And then I delivered the line and they were like, Phew. like no reaction. And I was like, okay, that's not it. <laughs> Try again. Mm-hmm. And so it was like inferring what was valuable by their reactions. And then finally kind of coming to this place of like, hey, you know what's really stressful for me? Like the real big problem is when I go to buy software for our company, I am really scared. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know what questions to ask. I'm going to spend a bunch of the company's money. And if I do it wrong, I'm going to feel like a failure. I might get fired. And so it was that stress. And so I was like, cool, I'm not an expert in all these softwares, but what I can offer you is I'm going to, I was like, I'm going to under promise and over deliver. And so I was like, I will sit on sales meetings for you, take notes and come back and type them up for you and give them to you and you decide which ones you want to meet with. And so they're like, yeah, seems easy enough. So people would be like, hey, we're looking for this. Can you talk to these vendors for me? And so I'd go in, start taking notes, asking questions. And I was learning how to ask questions. I was learning about these systems and developing these like pretty nice write-ups on all of them. And pretty soon it was like, wait, I actually know this stuff better than most. Like I actually have a really good database of like write-ups on these different ones. And each time that someone asks for something new, I don't have to do 10 meetings to figure out what it is. I actually can pull from some of the database. So it started to become a little bit more of a marketplace of like, hey, what do you want? And it's like, here, we've got all these options. Let's bring these ones forward. Then it was like this very manual process of like sitting on all these sales meetings. And the other piece of it was I knew that if I could own the relationship with the buyer, like they trust me and they go through me, and then I bring them to the vendor, the, the company selling the software, the I was, I've been in sales works. I know they'll pay for that. Like they're always trying to get in touch with good customers. So I was like, I can do this for free for you as a buyer because these guys will pay me and I can do it in a really like transparent, fair way if I get paid by all of them. And that way I'm not trying to push you one way or the other. I'm just like, tell me what you're looking for. 
these are probably your two or three best matches. Why don't you talk to them and decide which one you like the best? Whichever one you pick, I'm going to get paid. So I've got really no bias here, but just want you to do a good job. And so that's really the whole business. It's been building out the vendor marketplace, getting all the software companies to say, hey, this is a really nice model. You know, we don't have to pay you unless you help us generate new business because we only get it paid if they actually sign up. So for them, super low risk, helping them get in touch with customers. They like it. The buyers, they're like, cool, you're going to do a lot of homework for me. You're going to save me all this time. You're going to give me coverage too. Like when I go to meet with my bosses, I can say independent report told us these are the best options. Now a lot of skin off my back. And so both sides have like really bought into it, but it's taken time. It's been a really slow process because it's a new model. Like companies haven't bought like this before. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just like, hey, we're going to go buy a house. Let's talk to a real estate agent. It's like, we're going to go buy software but you've never heard of a real estate agent before, right? Like yeah. they've never heard of this concept. And so that's the slow part, but it's like starting to really pick up. And then the last couple of years it's been, okay, this is cool. And there's a real value for both sides here. Let's put technology behind it. Instead of me manually building these reports that match them to the vendors, what if technology is doing that? Instead of me giving them, here's the questions you should ask, you know, having a database where they can pull from the questions that we already know are good and you know having scorecards that already generate so that's the part that we're building and that's kind of where the story is right now is like making this leap from a really novel con consulting business to hopefully a tech-powered marketplace yeah uh in no, that was another thing we were talking about before this. It's very exciting time for for this because I know the first the first iteration of this software portion came out in June, and um, you've been working on this for a while. Yeah, um, almost two years. Now. Almost two, wow. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say eighteen months. Um, no, man, I I remember the first time you told me your business model, and I just was like, is that legal? Like it like that's real? Um, because it's it just makes perfect sense, and you know everybody wins. Like you're literally all you're doing is making the process easier and that's the value and that's what makes it worth money to people um it's really incredible thanks man yeah i uh and i don't know i love the the analogy of the real estate it's like it's like going to buy a house you don't know what a real estate agent is so but real estate agents really want to tell you who they are and every real estate agent only has one house to sell you and that house is the best house for you no matter what it's it, it when i when i sit and think about the the model of, of software, it's just, it is, it is for sure broken. Like it is just not, not something that's going to be sustainable. It's getting worse. And like AI is now in there so they can spam even more. And there's only more software companies coming to market, not less. Like it mm -hmm. used to be, there was just Oracle and SAP, like these big, big companies. And now it's like there's startups, there's, it's a, you know, there's so much more choice. And the example that I compare it to a lot is health insurance actually, because they do have brokers and that's kind of what we mm -hmm. are positioning ourselves as. It used to be a company would say, hey, we're going to go out and shop for the insurance plans for the company, for all the employees. And they would go to the insurance carriers and they'd pick out their plan. And then insurance and healthcare got so complex that now there's a whole huge industry. Five, I, I looked it up recently. It's like $400 billion industry around insurance brokering. Wow. Just being a consultant, telling the company, there's all this stuff going on, but I'm going to translate it into a plan for you and your business. And the analogy works perfectly for software. It's like, yeah, you used to buy software by yourself, but now there's a million software platforms. They all need to be integrated. They're constantly shifting. So you need someone in the middle that understands all that and can say for your business, here's the right strategy. And so that's that's the goal. It's that's, like that's where bread and out sale lie. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Well, I am very excited for for this next this next step because I know we've been like you said for the past two years talking about this extension and um a couple I, I still have memories too of a couple of our late night conversations after a few too many beverages where i would just be like I, you're just doing it man <laughs> like this, i love i love this thing um no it's really it's been really cool to see it all evolve and um i mentioned at the beginning of the, the show but like i 2019 when i was still working in software and i'd moved back with my folks to kind of like start piecing together what i wanted to do and i would come out here for for ski trips and stay with you and like that that being my first, you know, seeing what it looked like on a day-to-day -day basis to run a business. Um, and this is, you know, early, early days, but, you know, how 
regimented you are. I mean, I'm still using the notebook brand that you told me about uh, when when we first uh, when I was first staying with you. So it's been really cool to like get all the secondhand knowledge from you while also watching you kind of grow this thing. Thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. I never got to be a big brother, so it's fun to be able to do that. For I, you. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I was a little. You're, you're you're younger than me, but you're you're you've done a lot of shit. So like the wisdom uh, goes well beyond your your thirty years. Excellent. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything else you would like to add before we bring this to a close? This is goddamn delicious. <laughs> you did a great job. The carbonated Oslo is incredible. Yeah. This yeah. is uh, first first canning run was yesterday. Brett is uh, the recipient of one of. I think this is the second can. Uh, I drank the first one. Um, and it doesn't suck. So, no, it's uh, awesome. Congratulations, yes. dude. You, Thank you. You've come, like, it's always been good, but this is a great development. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, this is trailing off a, a little bit, but, like, you tried the very first version in those, like, label-less, misassorted bottles. I remember. Um, yeah. So, we, you know, it's, we've come a long way, too. Yeah. It's been, it's been good. But, always happy to be the guinea pig. Yeah. All right. Well, appreciate you, man.